My name is Kevin Lyman, and welcome to the My Warp Life podcast. I'm sitting here with my co-host, Tony Aratia. That's me, Tony Aratia. You have to roll those R's. And uh, my background, as a lot of people know, was I've been in the music business for 40 years. I was uh, best known for creating uh, the Vans Warp Tour. I worked on Lollapalooza. I worked in the clubs of L.A. for 13, 14 years, doing 320 years. But, Tony, a lot of the people that might be listening to this may not know your background. Well, so. the only reason why I'm here really is because I golf with Kevin. I thought it was for the ribs. It's for the ribs, absolutely, <laughs> and for your barbecue. No, I, I, we, we met through a, a mutual friend, and it wasn't that long ago. So not having the experience of, of being on the Warp Tour allows me a unique insight of, of asking a lot of questions that people otherwise wouldn't ask that, that generally surround you. So we met through Tony Palermo, a dear, yeah. dear friend of mine who's and, is and a drummer of Papa Roach. Yeah, he's a drummer of Papa Roach who was on Warp Tour. Right. And I think Tony played in a few other bands that might have drifted in and out of that parking lot right. at some point. And I met him at, in front of the hardware store one day. <laughs> and uh, we looked at each other because it's, we're, we're, we're in such transient relationships in this business that sometimes you look at people and you think you know them, you think, and then it, it dawned on us who we were. And he told me, you guys played golf right down the street That's on Wednesdays. Right. And, and, then, and the mistake he made you. was by inviting me to come over. And now you find yourself. No. And now, now I'm hanging out with you more than I hang out with him. <laughs> I know. I know. We miss Tony. No, we miss Tony. We miss Tony much. a lot. Um, but it's in, in that time where we started talking and we started to getting to know each other, I mean, we had a lot in common. I've been in entertainment for many, many years in, in the unique position that I have is is building recording studios and building huge broadcast workflows and feature film finishing workflows. And I also have a website on my own, which is called homegrownhits.com, where people in 110 countries around the world are trying to upload their home recorded music and try and make a hit song. Yeah, that's all real cool and everything, but how did you really break in the entertainment business? I was a dancer. <laughs> yes, I danced for years. Equity, musical theater. Hello, that's why I'm here. Yes, and you have a great laugh, so uh, <laughs> we will play well on this podcast. But this podcast is going to explore 40 years of my history. Um, you know, I've drifted through thousands of people with their own unique warped lives. And we hope to tell a lot of stories and have a lot of fun because... A lot of the stories. You know, it wasn't fair to just have these stories on the golf course. And I immediately said, look, stop. Stop talking. Get in front of the mic because there are amazing things that you've experienced over the years. And I still have questions. But if I ever stop talking, I can't hit a golf ball. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only way I can hit a golf ball is if I continue to talk through it. So I'm really looking forward to getting on from one episode to the next episode to the next because... Some of the subjects that you're tackling are all kind of based on a theme, and it, and it wraps around your experiences and stories that, frankly, blow my head off. Yeah, we're going to take themes, you know, like bus drivers, and we're going to take themes like food, and we're going to take some of the idiosyncrasies and things I've learned through the business on how to tweak the business to fit some of my business models that have, have you know, most of them have worked and some haven't. And, and there's, there's these these things that you had to deal with. I mean, it was a punk rock. You know, skateboard tour. So there was very unconventional ways to make this thing happen. And the experiences that you had to get to where you were, to where it had a brand, it had an idea where people knew what the Warp Tour was, and it was unique from anything else. But as in everything, there was many years before that that molded those decisions by observing others. When we put this together, I said, we have to go out and get some interviews of people. So instead of just interviewing one guest, Tony, we'll be splicing in a lot of different people into our right. episodes to help tell this story. 
Uh, on our first episode, we have uh, Chris Shiflett, who was in No Use for a Name. Amazing. And uh, went on, and he's now in the Foo Fighters. We have Jennifer Finch, who uh, is, in, was in L, is in L7 and continues to be in L7. Uh, we have my old friend Gus Brandt, who was a road manager for the artist Seaweed, later went on to road manage uh, Eminem on the Warp Tour, and then went on to be the Foo Fighters road manager and now manages Mark Hoppus. And then I went out and said, you know, what would be something about what I did without talking to the fans? So we reached out through my social media. You can follow me at, you know, it's always Kevin Lyman at Twitter, Kevin Lyman at Instagram. I'll be reaching out to people for different information and have them as guests on the show too. So our guest for this episode is a gentleman named John Smith. He was 15 years old when he went to the first show. He went to the first show in Salt Lake City and he's uh, turned into a DJ um, in Salt Lake City and continues to be a DJ. And an old friend, Tazy, who was a person who had a ska parade. He was a, a person who kept ska music alive in California, mm -hmm. and he'll be a guest on today's show. So I, when you t first said to me that you were going to be able to interview Chris, and I was excited because I'm like a huge Foo Fighter fan, but I didn't realize you know, how close people got on tours and, and, and how well you knew him. And so when, when you first got on tour and the band that he was on, what did you tell him the tour was? I mean, what, what, what was the, the plan? Well, the interesting thing with Chris was he was in a band uh, called Green, Green Thumb. Uh, I, was a, kind of, I met him out in my house. Me and my wife lived in a, a log cabin basically out in Claremont. I guess mm -hmm. we'd met out mm -hmm. there. And then he was in the band No Use for a Name, which was kind of a cool punk band that was right. within the scene. We kind of knew each other. And uh, when I was talking to Chris, uh, we, were, you know, we were trying to come up with a name. And back then... You had to do. You had to pay like four hundred dollars for a name search. You couldn't just Google something. And then he recalled, and he actually brought something else about the name that I hadn't even known. I feel like it was almost like right away, or maybe even before I joined No Use, that they were already talking to you about doing that tour. And I remember that originally it was called Pangea. Do you remember that? Oh yeah, there was, yeah. was yeah, Pangea, and then uh, yeah, I was going to go with a bomb, and then the Oklahoma City bombing happened, and then right, it became, right, then it, then it became <laughs> warped because yeah. you know I had you know Warp Magazine with Trans World, so I borrowed that name, uh, oh, okay, because I couldn't afford any more name searches. But <laughs> yeah, you got a Pangea. That's right. That's awesome, Pangea. It was so worldly of you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, those were my, probably my hippie roots coming out in Claremont, yeah. you know. And it was so kind what of, was the other one that was bombed and then the Oklahoma City yeah, bombing I, hit? You know, there was a term that everyone kind of used back then, like, but that's the bomb. Like, you know, oh, the bomb. The okay. bomb. So oh, the tour, I thought bomb. that'd be cool. Like, I am so glad that didn't work out because that is lame. That would have been, <laughs> both of them probably would have not worked out. Probably <laughs> no. Pangea would have got confused. Pangea would have probably turned and, into some kind of world music thing. Yeah, and Fish would have probably been on it at one point. But then, you know, it was like, and then the bomb, you know, and, and literally it was the morning that we were going to announce the tour, the Oklahoma City bombing <laughs> happened, that tragedy. And I was going, that's probably, and then- So it, how did it, it get to war? I mean, what, what what was the aha moment? Well, then at the, the, I was just thinking also with the bomb, the tour didn't do that well the first year. So no. it would have been known like, in the industry as the bomb, the bomb. bomb. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, we were, you know, and the warped, it really was, it was uh, my friend, um, Fran Richards from Transworld Publications, they had skateboarding and surfing uh -huh. magazines. Yeah, yeah. And we'd done all these events in the snow and charity events. And that's about building relationships, you know? It was one of those things that when I approached him, I says, you have a magazine. It was called Warped Magazine. You can still get a copy of it in Tokyo. 
Uh, just like you can go to Tower, really? you can go to Tower Records in Tokyo. Well, you, you know? can still buy vans too. You know, well, vans, of course, <laughs> you can get vans uh, around the world now. But it it is an interesting thing where uh, we borrow the mag. And I I was when we were in Tokyo last year with a Warp Tour. I picked up a copy of the magazine. It's a it's a nice magazine. Is it really nice? You know, so the, the name was you know so we kind of settled on this name Warped. Um, warped and uh we were able to use the name like like chris said and i told him we, i had no more money to get any more name searches <laughs> we had to get out on the road and we we kind of all of a sudden you know it was like i wanted to do it differently you know and and a lot of people were thinking was i just trying to do Lollapalooza? someone actually said what's he trying to do you know duplicate Lollapalooza." i remember um hearing that and i was like no i'm trying to do something this was technically going to be the last time i did well, something warped is a completely 360 from Lollapalooza. It's just a different feel. It's a different vibe, and thank God for it. It obviously caught on to a niche of uh, a groove for uh, you know hundreds of thousands of kids across this country and around the world. So we had to kind of it came together quick, and it was interesting because you know it was like we had to go. So I said, you know, my first one, let's all share tour buses, and uh, that's the question I have for you. The first one. Let's be honest. The my first. You know, time at anything. We can we can go on and on with analogies. How was the first one? Can you tell us what it was really like? Well, I think I'd like to you know blend in some of these uh, some of these people. I went to them. For me, I was like everything's an adventure. So I'm like, okay, we're gonna. Go. It was short time, so we had to go find some bands that believed in it. You know, um, and Quicksand and Orange Nine Millimeter from the East Coast were managed uh, by a person. But I want to go back. It was like. It moved very quickly uh, when, you know, the original, I had a friend that was talking to me about doing uh, the, the five for five, the secret was five for five bands. He wanted right. me to help. I was always producing things for other people. Right. And I went to a guy named Les Borsai and told him, no, I want to do this thing with action sports. And the next thing I know, I'm sitting in front of a lawyer's house up in the Hollywood Hills <laughs> on a hot day, just sitting on the car. He, and it should have been an indication I should have ran when he made us sit in the hot sun for about an hour waiting for this meeting. And it moved very quickly. And, you know, CAA got involved. It was great to have them involved because they were also a agency that didn't really have any bands that could have probably gone on the tour. There was a lot of punk rock agents, but I wanted to kind of have a fresh start. So we started approaching bands about this first tour. So I think we should, you know, maybe hear from some of those bands, you know, about their first, uh, you know, going on what that their first experience tour. was like. I mean, because I'm sure it was Lear Jets and it was you know, sweets and at the top, the Hyatt, that kind of stuff. No, it's, uh, let's go to, you know, let's go and, and hear what Chris uh, Shiflett said, because I actually had bands touring with each other, sharing buses. One of the funniest memories for me of, of that first year of the Warp Tour was before, you know, when it was still just kind of in the planning stages. Um, I remember I, I called you one day and I was, I was like, hey man, um, should, you know, do you know where we're going to be staying? Like what kind of hotels we're going to be at on this thing? Like, cause I kind of want to bring my running shoes. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> and you, you just laughed and laughed and laughed. And I was like, what, what? <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> I guess I'm being presumptuous here, but, um, which is funny in hindsight. Cause you know, we didn't stay in hotels. We were just like this, you know, we were just like pirates, you know, pirate ship. Which kind of led into that whole, you know, my concept was, you know, to kind of keep the cost down for everyone, you would be sharing a bus with someone. 
Yeah. And and who was that someone that you were, it was more like an assigned, like a summer camp. You didn't really have much say yeah. who you were traveling with, you know? No, we we were with, uh, with L7. Um, I mean, just the first off, just to step back from that for a second, like just to be on a bus, dude, was like, you know, that was like such an incredible luxury. That was my first bus experience and my last bus experience for tour in a bus, you know? So to be on a bus was amazing, um, especially on a tour like that where you're covering so much ground. But our bus was really funny because it was um, it was us and L7, and we didn't have a huge crew. We had a couple people with us, and they they just had a couple people with them. And but then, do you remember um, there were like three inline skaters? Oh I think yeah, they were they were all Australian somehow. Yeah, to Tom um, Tom Fry, who unfortunately has passed away since. Was on oh, your buff, and Renee, like uh, the redhead, the big redhead Viking yeah. guy, kind of, you yeah. know. Uh, he was on the bus, but uh, yeah, inline skater, and it was a mix because it was like a, we were trying to make skateboarding and inliners get along. It was my idea yeah. that everyone could be on the same ramp, you know. Um, I just remember all of us claimed all the bunks and the inline skaters were like just sort of stuffed in the cracks. Like you'd get up in the morning, <laughs> there'd be like inline skaters on on couches and on the floor and stuff. But do you remember, you know what sticks out about that that bus? Do you remember, um, and it's funny because I didn't care about this at all at the time because I didn't really know anything about country music, but the guy that drove our bus was this older dude, and I'm pretty sure that he had been like something like Ray Price's bus driver for yeah. years or something yeah, like those- that. And like now, and, and the, here's the funny part is that that guy fucking hated us. He, he was just like, oh my God, like it must've been a low point in his bus driving career to have all these assholes just making a mess and making a rag. It was just, you know, it was mayhem like every single day. And he hated us. And he would like, if you left your shoes on in the hallway, he'd hide them. So you'd like get up the next day and you'd have to, the first thing you'd have to do before you went out and got figured out where breakfast and coffee was, you'd have to like find your shoes and they'd be like, you know, like in one of the bays in a box, like stuffed all the way in the back. You know, it wasn't like on accident. You know what I mean? He would like hide your shoes. But now, you know, like I love country music now. Like now if I, if I was on that guy's bus, I'd just sit up front with him and ask him stories about Ray Price all day. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But at the I, time I was like, we were just at war, you know? No, 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 no. The guy hid his shoes. Fuck that guy. No, that's what you do on a bus <laughs> if you lay him out. If you leave your stuff out on a tour bus. No, of course. I mean, could notorious. you imagine this guy on the bus being... You know this. He's got a job. He's got this thing, and he's got a bunch of punk rock. They were twenty. They were twenty-one. Yeah, it was the first time out. But so you teach people on a bus, and that's you know we'll explore. We'll do a whole episode on this. You you know, that's the other thing too that you had to for the last twenty-five years. I mean, it didn't change for you. Grew and you got older. You were kind of a father figure. You taught these people how to act proper. Well, you know, touring. You know, there's there's an etiquette to touring. There has to be, or you'll kill each other. There has to, and uh, living on a bus with twelve people. Uh, that's a normal bus, but we actually on on this tour had buses up to 24, and even these buses wow. that were b- meant for 12 had 15, 16 people because it's a funny little bit. But people stowed away on the first warp tour. We uh, what? We all met in a, in a in a parking lot the first time, and you know, Greg Greg Teal, my friend, has a little you know observation of that first time we we how we all left. It was more like a summer camp. Was it in Claremont at the yeah. old warehouse? At the old warehouse down on yeah. Arrow Highway, yeah. Yeah. And I want to say it was in the evening time, and we kind of, like, divided everybody up into buses, and that's kind of how we left. Yeah. Yeah, we loaded yeah. up 
we load up the trucks that day and then got on the buses and hit the road. And we literally left and then we drove and stopped up in Vegas at the Rio for a buffet. Yeah. And then we for, we realized we had a lot of extra people. People had stowed away on that tour. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, like, the liability issue of that, I mean, I well, imagine some we of these We weren't really thinking about liability at the 1995. We'll talk a little bit about later about liability and lawsuits and what all the reasons why we had to have make insurance. A, a, but this first year, it was kind of like- See oh, to your pants. If you were willing to stow away and jump on with a backpack and go on a tour, I was, I, I, I gave you a lot of props. Like, you know, it was, <laughs> it was that's just who I always- Did you I, put them to work? Uh, they a lot of them were skaters, and then I mean, do, did you were they kids that were stowing away? Yeah, or? I mean, they were all you know. We were all you know. I was thirty two when I started the Warp Tour, you know. So everyone, I you know, and I was like probably the elder statesman on the tour at that point. Of course, at thirty two. So but they were just kind of following the party, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, they just bit. had heard about this thing, and you know, at that point, just jump on a bus. You know, um, you know, it was interesting because you know. L7, uh, Jennifer, you know, they, they'd come off some pretty big tours. They'd been on Lollapalooza the sure. previous year. Uh, they had toured with REM, um, you know, and Jennifer had some great insights about, you know, that first year. How did you make it through that first year? I threw lots of tantrums, uh, challenged you, started yelling at you. Um, <laughs> was like, I'm hungry, Kevin. Be <laughs> uh, eating. I mean, we got scrappy. You know, we tried to do the. I think that like one of the challenges, and this is more on the end, like your end of it, was rolling up to a venue in the middle of the night, not knowing where we were, and not having transportation to just either arrange to have food come in or toiletries or tampons or toothbrushes, you know, like showing up and running out of these things and then figuring out, I'm going to use a fancy word, logistics. You know, we had, we were like learning logistics as we were going and coming from, um, you know, one of the things is L7 has always been like, we got to a certain point. We had been touring for seven to 10 years at that point. The band formed in 1986. We started touring regularly in 88. You know, we were minors. I was a minor when I started playing and we had to be able to develop systems to just get our basic needs met, like showering or clean underwear or clean socks. And uh, bringing in like Lollapalooza to the Warp Tour, there was a whole new level of logistics. And I know it's probably not fascinating to anyone listening, but I find it all very fascinating, like how it worked. And I have such admiration for you that you found these, I, I want to call them empty spaces, like underutilized spaces and created energy in them, like the loading docks of big venues. And like one of the funnest things that I remember was we were able to say that we were playing these big amphitheaters, like these big old amphitheaters. But what we were really playing was the parking lot. Or one concourse. I know like in... Camden, New Jersey, it was like one concourse. Now, I'm sure that changed over the years, but that first you know, year was really, well, you were like, it was almost like a communal thing. And that's really where we were trying to to kind of start that essence of a community. And L7 got it. You know, they were a band I'd worked with a lot. Yeah, uh, because there are other bands would be like, no, I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, we'll see you. Bye. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Warped wasn't for, it was all the way through all those years. It wasn't for everyone. But those were the bands that kind of knew me from before. So, right. so it almost like they supported me by knowing me from before. 
And that's what I tell people all the time that you should, you know, you want to make sure that, you know, people always say, hey, I want to start a festival or that. I go, I was allowed to fail pretty much. I, I, I had enough of a I background mean, to like, fail. Uh, you kept failing until you succeeded. So that's not really a fair statement. Well, it was really one year. I mean, by year two, we'll talk about that later yeah, on. We were, we were doing okay. But that first one, and, you know, it was interesting for people like, for, for like Jennifer and people to be on that show because I, I really hold a, a great spot in my heart because they took a risk that first year. Uh, you know, we, I was lucky enough to catch up with, with our good friend, you know, Gus Brandt, uh, and he has some, in, some reflections of that first year. Uh, you know, and, and I, he, he, isn't he, didn't he manage Eminem too, right? No, he was road managed Eminem. He road managed He was a road Eminem. manager for Eminem. Uh, he did Seaweed. He was with a band called Seaweed and he has a little bit of an insight of, about them on the first right, tour. Right. That'd be cool. They, um, they were friends of mine from once again, playing Pensacola. Like they came through and. We would go to the same like old lady buffets. <laughs> they just loved it here because it was so weird, like Tacoma, where they're from. And I came off of this REM tour with Belly and flew straight to Tacoma and or Seattle and drove straight down to Salt Lake City. Yeah. And uh, so you're there. coming up, you know, and touring with REM and opening out of Belly. You know, it's you're once again, you're an act who was playing and arenas and large venues with dressing rooms and things. And that day, you know, you showed up in Salt Lake City. That was, you know, probably a, yeah. maybe a little bit of a, an awakening. But, you know, you were that you were always that calm. You come up in a lot of conversations as very even keeled and calm. Oh, and, nice. <laughs> and when you showed up at that first show, I think, you know, probably was maybe a little bit of a, sh a sticker, like a shock to you, maybe just a little bit of what it was going to be like. Yeah, I mean, I, there, you know, our advance was like, hey, Kevin, we'll be there tomorrow at four on, um, you know, the show day. It wasn't, <laughs> yeah, we'll just be there. We'll be there when you need us. You, we'll, we'll stay out of your way. And I didn't know what to expect. And, you know, I remember, you know, the word tour, the first one, food being like the most precious thing. It was almost like a Hunger Games type thing, you know, <laughs> like just <laughs> struggling and not, you know, and everyone just like broed down and they're, you know, you, you put people, and, and you know, bands were sharing buses and seaweed were only on 80% of the tour, you know, like dropped off at the end. So we had our own bus and it was just, you know, the best bus a dollar ninety-five could buy. <laughs> yeah, I used yeah. to I used to tell seaweed that if, if I caught them hanging out with Sublime, they were fine, they're per diem. Like, you know, you, you don't get your ten dollars. Those guys <laughs> are scary, stay away. No, that is amazing. You when you think about it, uh, they were all Young, they were all very young kids. That that would have been the best time of the life. Twenty one, twenty two people on the bus. Okay, I can understand. It was after okay, six but, and then, but they had that touring experience. But then I brought this band called Sublime on the tour with us, and on Sublime, <laughs> I remember getting Sublime's uh, cassette demo originally, and um, I started working with them around Los Angeles, and had done. We had done some shows at at, at ski resorts at one point right. with uh, the Offspring, no doubt, and Sublime. But, you know, you started to, there were always like this kind of train wreck. And I'm sure we could do a whole episode on sublime stories, just like we will about Fletcher stories at some point uh, of this. Uh, Fletcher. You know, I, I saw, you know, I did some research on this and I, I think it was, uh, I Googled 95 Warp Tour, uh, no doubt. And you saw Gwen up there dancing on stage and then Sublime came on with his dog completely out of his mind. I mean, I'm sure, like you said, but you can see that footage. There's so many documentary 
footage on YouTube of some of these things. I, I, I heard you talking about it to me on a story, but until I actually saw the video of how crazy it got out there, I was like, wow. Yeah, I think Chris, you know, Chris had a, you know, we'll touch on a little bit of a Chris story about Sublime. <laughs> I had kicked someone off the tour and you wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't be right to not talk about Sublime that first year. Ah, <laughs> yes. yes. You know, we, we haven't really mentioned Sublime in this episode, yes. but you know, uh, you know, I, I always had a soft spot for that band and Brad Noel, yes, I think, you know, right. rest his soul would have been, I think he would have been an amazing, like he would have been mind blowing what he would have produced and written over time. For sure. But, but yeah. what, what were your recollections of them that first year? I mean, they were, they were, I mean, they, I, they were such great guys and not just them, but everybody that worked with them too. Um, I mean, I just remember them being so warm and, and, and fun to be around. And obviously like, you know, we could talk at length about all the, the partying. I mean, everybody was partying and I mean, I, and that was, you know, that was just around and, um, and, and it sort of, everybody was doing that. So it didn't seem like, um, you know, in light of how Brad died later on, you know, it didn't seem like, uh, out of step with what everybody else was doing. You know what I mean? Right. Like, I, I mean, I remember, but I remember some crazy shit too. Like I remember watching, um, I think it was uh, Brad and the drummer like getting a fist fight, like either right yeah. after a set or right before yeah. a set, you know, that sort of thing. And still like, and still playing the show. And, um, and I think I that was, like, I think that was up at Melody Fair, up outside of Buffalo. They got in a fight in the mud. Remember the fans yes. throwing mud at him? And yes. then they got, that was the, that when they got the yes. fist fight in the parking lot. Yeah. So, <laughs> and I remember that they, they brought the, their Dalmatian on that tour and the Dalmatian would like bite people and like, <laughs> um, would like, had like really bad, gas or something like i remember like, it really they, I, I think the funniest part was that they were on a bus with a vegan hardcore band which yeah, is our, like the greatest thing like an east coast vegan hardcore <laughs> band matched up with sublime and then there's their crazy dog and i remember at one point um somebody wrote you know no human food on the dog's head like in sharpie so that people would still <laughs> stop feeding yeah <laughs> feeding well, it you know so you know, it was interesting, Tony, because it, it was like a love hate relationship with me and that dog. To be honest, I really. Oh yeah, I mean, Lou Dog, you can't blame him. I mean, he he grew up in a in a in a, uh, he's a, it's a, a dog, disturbed. But you and, don't bring a dog on tour, well, do you? The dog I mean, was the dog was not allowed to come on. There was there was a deal I had with the band before we left on the road. Right. No dog and no friends. Like <laughs> no dog and no friends. And and Sublime, just check those. No dog. No. We got the dog. Let's check. Well, hey guys, you want to come they on? They didn't the actually dog? bring the dog at the beginning of the tour. We we got to Asbury Park, and we'd been struggling. Like you know, we're just getting across the country. Uh, you know, we we were having venues cancel and moving to smaller venues. We were constantly just getting down the road. We got to Asbury Park, and we actually had a pretty good show. We had a solid show. Right. And I was feeling good, but they decided to fly their dog in. And I think their friends brought him a bunch of drugs, to be God. honest. And we, we played the Stone Pony, kind of a famous venue. Right. You know, if you Very know Bruce famous. Springsteen, the history of, of the venue. We played in the parking lot. And behind it was this, like, gay cowboy bar. So at the end of the night, we all decided, like, hey, let's go party at the, at the bar. And uh, here comes the dog and the friends. And within 10 minutes, the dog had bit two people. And we kind of got out of town. We went up to this melody fair it was muddy it was rainy uh the band but then by before they got in the fist fight 
Was that at the bar? They got in a fist fight. No, they got the the, the dog bit people, and then oh, we laughed. Okay, so yeah, it's like it's yeah. one of those things. Let's get on the bus. Let's, let's go. Let's get out, out of town. Let's, let's get out of town. The cops <laughs> are going to come. And you got a bunch of gay cowboys chasing after the bus down the parking yeah, lot. So, <laughs> so we went. So we went to Melody Fair, and in the morning, before like you know, we're not. We're just starting to get going. Uh, the dog had bit two people on skateboards. Oh, jeez. And I went up to Brad, and I'm like, "Are you effing kidding me, man? I told you, no dog." And what in hell is it biting? He goes, well, you know, Kevin, he hates skateboarders. I go, we're on, we're on a skateboarding <laughs> tour. And um, it was like, I, I was just, I was, you know, people don't realize that you know, I wasn't sleeping. I, I'm, we're losing money. I'm worried about like, will I have a home when I get back to California? You know, I left my, you know, wife and newborn child there. And, and we, I'm, I'm just hanging on. And I told him like, do not, do not, you, the dog must go. And the friends have to go because their friends were bad. Their right. friends at that point, most of them grown scene. up and doing all right. It was just a bad scene. And uh, we went to Nassau Coliseum. I go downstairs. There's a box of cereal, two boxes of cereal for breakfast. There's, you know, food keeps coming up in all their conversations. Mm -hmm. And there's their friends eating one box of the food and the dog with a bowl and the other box of cereal. They're feeding the dog. And I lost it. And I, I kicked them. I said, you guys got to go. Like you're taking a 90% of my time is you and you got to go. Uh, I always have a soft spot though and go, okay, you're kicked off until we got to Seattle. People didn't really realize that we drove, literally, we drove from New York with only one show in between from there to Seattle. What was the show? And we played in Milwaukee. So they really missed like one show oh, okay. and, and they couldn't even get into Canada anyhow. We had a Vancouver show, but legally they couldn't get in there because of all the <laughs> legal shenanigans they were in. And, you know, but, but going back to that first show, I thought it was a great time to bring John Smith in because he was at the first show as a fan. Right. And uh, I think that's really a Now, John Smith, isn't this the guy that is, I think he's Sacramento, right? That he, area? No, he's, uh, he's, John Smith is from uh, Salt Lake City. Salt Lake, and that's he's right. A, he's a DJ. And up, he's a DJ. He's got like a pretty successful yeah, show out there. And he was super cool because he... He showed he had the first flyer. He has a photo. He had the first flyer from oh, the first right work tour, and he shared that with me. And I found out I had done some interviews with him through the years. So it was very funny and almost reverse when I talked to him about his first experience. So from a fan's perspective, let's uh, hear what John had to say. So it was we lied to my parents and told them it was at night, and we ditched school because it was on a Friday. Right. Um, and so we we left school at lunch and drove out uh, drove out to Saltair and. The first thing that struck me uh, as we walked, we we walked onto the Saltair grounds was door show. Most of the that we'd been to, like I said, were like a basement restaurant, like old Mexican restaurants that had shut down for the night. But this was a full scale thing, and I remember there. Were, this was the first punk show that we'd been to that had more than one stage, right? Like I'd been to Lollapalooza before. Um, and I'd been to like festival shows at the fairgrounds. Um, but this was the first, like with a skateboard ramp and, and people that were more along my, my newfound love of punk and hardcore. Uh, you know, it's funny, like me and my friends, we had all just done the, we had all just made the transition from, from grunge and alternative to punk rock, right? Like Green Day and Offspring were, were making the scene. So we'd all cut our hair off and, you know, dished the flannel shirts. And, um, all of a sudden we were surrounded by, by people that 
were dressed and looked just like us, not at night, but in the daytime. <laughs> and it was, it was really cool. It was, it was kind of a thing where it was like, okay, this is, we knew, we, we knew then that this was something different, that this was something, something unique. Which, which, I mean, and, you know, growing up in Salt Lake City, I mean, the political climate towards punk rock necessarily, you guys were definitely kind of on the edge there. How were you kind of viewed, you know, in the community in some ways? It might have been a little scary at times. Yeah, a little. Like, my dad worked for a company called TRW, which is in uh, Hermosa Beach. So I got to go back and forth, and, and I'd heard of bands like The Descendants and Pennywise and Black Flag growing up. Um, but I, I didn't really give them too much, too much thought. Like I was, I, I, I didn't appreciate it at the time. And then all of a sudden I'm seeing these bands that, that I'd seen and, and all of the, the older members of our group we had always talked about. And all of a sudden it was kind of like, okay, this, this was like all starting to come together. Right. All of a sudden it was, we, we had a scene, right. It wasn't just a bunch of nerdy kids skateboarding to, to downtown and, uh, and, and trying to live up to their standards. And all of a sudden we had our own thing. Um, and I remember when, uh, when Civ took on, we, we had to choose between Civ and Sublime and we, right. we were like, okay, well, we're here to see Sublime. So we're going to check out Sublime and, and they were terrible. <laughs> um, obviously, you know, Bradley at the time was going through his, his stuff and, and it was, it, it it was hard to watch. Even at 16, we were all kind of like, okay, I don't know what this is. This, this is, let's go check out this other band that's out on the beach. And Sid was playing like out on the beach of Saltaire. Yeah. Little yeah. one foot stage, if I remember. It was like yes, the stage was about yeah. one foot high. Yeah. And this wasn't yeah. like, like to set the scene for, for listeners, it, it, this is not the warp tour that you think of when you hear the warp tour. This is like, I mean, there were maybe two, 300 people there. I mean, this was not the, the 50, 60,000 people seven stage warp tour that we all came to know and love. This was very much a, a prototype version of, of what we, what came to change the scene. Um, and I remember seeing Civ up there was our first experience with, with hardcore, um, and seeing Civ and quicksand and, you know, these bands and, and they were, they were loud and they were fast and they were angry and they were, they, it was just a whole new experience. And I remember seeing, uh, Walter from, from quicksand at his booth. And when we were talking about it, we were like, Oh dude, man, this, this is something else. And, and Walter, I'll never forget this. Walter told me to check out his other band, his, as he put it, his other band, Gorilla Biscuits. Yeah. Right. One of the most legendary hardcore bands to ever, ever come out of the music industry. And he's like, oh, yeah, you should check out my other band. You should. And he gave yeah, me he... a Quicksand T-shirt, which was amazing. And that was kind of the thing, Tony, where, you know, it was the sense of discovery. Even back then, you know, people maybe came for one band, saw a different band, kind of got turned on to a different genre of music. For me, it was like bringing all these bands that toured separately in clubs and starting to bring the sound together because I was working every night of the week in, in the clubs and I saw kids that if you brought them together, I thought this could actually become much bigger than clubs. So you, when you consciously booked these bands, it wasn't just, yeah, okay, come on on the tour or just kind of haphazard. You really thought about the, the we, theme of what was, you wanted to do. Well, the first year we had to convince people like <laughs> you had to go to your friends <laughs> hey, and everything. Come on this bus with 21 and, other people. You know, and, we, and we toured all the way around, but this was also a moment, you know, we, we toured the country and then, Towards the end of that tour, 
we had a band join us that went on to be one of the biggest bands, you know, of that genre of music, a band named No Doubt. And, uh, you know, Jen has some funny uh, recollections of when jo uh, No Doubt joined us on tour. And, you know, and, and even then, if you look at some of the footage then uh, of them on your tour, you could just see it. You could see that they were going to just be monstrous. Well, we always knew they were going to be, um, me and Paul Tolette with Golden Waste, they were always playing on ska bills. They were playing like, you know, there was, we do these 13, 14 band bills. Right. And it was a, and they were like, you know, band 12, you know, they, right. you know, and then they just kept moving more and more up. And, and I'd sit there and, and to be honest, I would look at it and, and, and you see this many times when they're, when a band is together and they, they have a female in the band. A lot do you think a lot of it had to do with Jimmy Levine and when he started with them? Or no, 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 just... no. This is way before. This right. Is way this before. Is way before. Way before. So really what happened was, was it was kind of, and you see that in, in a process of a lot of times when you have a strong female singer. A lot of times they just want to be a member of the band. Right. But with that band, originally they kind of dressed up in clown suits. When the, Some of the early, early <laughs> shows, they were all kind of dressed in these suits. But you, you kind of knew that there was a star quality there. Right. I mean, Gwen was going to be a star. I knew it from the minute I'd be working in those clubs. I'd, go, I'd sit there. But I was, we were not in a position like, you know, I'm just sure. I worked many, many nights. I saw bands, you know, four bands. I worked 320 shows a year. So I saw hundreds of bands right. a year. And you just knew when someone had the star quality. But everyone has to get comfortable with that. You know, you saw that later on with Paramore. Uh, you see that with artists that, you know, they have to get comfortable that there's going to be, someone's going to step out. So... It was very early in the career. Uh, they had not broken, but here's a funny But you know, I would, I would be curious from one band member recognizing another one on tour, especially a female's perspective of what it would, was like to not only tour with, but to see No Doubt. Well, I don't know. Jennifer had a pretty good recollection of what cool. she remembers them joining us. I'm just going to tell you right now, my memories are my memories, but it literally seemed like the adults showed up on the tour. Like they were so well put together. And by the time we were just, everyone, all of us, you, the, everyone was just falling apart at that point. Not falling apart in a bad way, but just like we had been doing it. Socks were dirty. We were past any issues. And then, I mean, what about needing a dressing room? <laughs> well, <laughs> are you looking at us about, I remember Gwen Stefani, was it Portland? I'm going to say like Portland was one of those rooms where we were in, it was like the actual shows were indoors and they were very small rooms and there was a side dressing room. And, you know, we had to, we figured out like timing who would get to use it. And I remember Gwen was just sitting there. We're all, she's putting on her makeup. She's like, how are you a woman in a band with four other women? Like it was just beyond her capacity, the, uh, the amount of sharing that we had to do on that tour. And I loved her for that moment. However, on that tour, Tony, we had, there was one show that seemed to really stand out. And, you know, it was, we played Salt Lake City. Right. A few hundred people there. The second show, we went to the, 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 intramural fields in, in, at the University of Colorado. Okay. And the promoter actually thought he canceled the show. So we're getting in his mode. And, <laughs> what time of year well, was he this? he said we could do the show, but he didn't order any concession stands. So we sent out and got a barbecue and sodas and we're cooking them for the kids. Right. Like a dollar for a hot dog, a dollar for sodas. Sure. And 
we, we kept going. We went through that, and and then we were just, and then we had to drive down to. Let me, let me back up. Let me back up. You got to Colorado. The guy had canceled the show or forgot about it. Yeah, but he, then said you could still do the show. Well, were the tickets sold? Well, I mean, that well, there's well, a little splitting. There was a to few there, tickets Lucy. sold. He sent. He did send someone out to kind of help us, or like it was kind of on, kind of off. Uh huh. He was pissed. It didn't sell tickets. He was going to lose money. Right. But we pulled it off. Okay. But now we had a drive. We had to drive all the way down to Dallas, Texas, and this was when they really thought they canceled the show. Um, a guy named Danny Eaton, um, who later became a big supporter of mine. But that first year, it's Lollapalooza was just down the street right. that same weekend. Uh. And Lollapalooza was still doing very well. It was a touring festival. And we have some great recollections of this, uh, you know, and, and I'd love to get a couple people's perspective on that first show. You know, you know, let's hear from Gus. I remember Dallas, the bomb factory. Because remember, there was a problem with the venues. Yeah, the, in that, Dallas, and uh, we moved to a smaller one or something. That came up in in uh, the, with Chris was he said I remember the bomb factory. We showed up, and you said, "Well, okay, we're going to set up the show." There's Lollapalooza was playing down the road. They were playing like in San Antonio, right near you know, not too far. And the promoter was like, "Oh God, I thought I canceled you guys." And I said, "Well, well, we're going to set up the show." And I I think we we tore down all the fences. There was only a little bit of fence around the lot. And we ended up letting, uh, doing a show for all the homeless people. And, uh, and they were all hanging out with their shopping carts and hanging out and got a, a punk rock show. Not only Gus had recollection, everyone came up. And, and Jennifer had a, a great recollection of that first show at the Bomb Factory. The promoter thought he canceled the show, kind of. Well, that, uh, didn't that also happen something in, like, in uh, San Antonio, Texas? Uh, Dallas, same, Dallas. The deep was it Dallas? At the, at the Bomb Factory. <laughs> we were yeah, talking. we were just showing up, and nobody, uh, no one had the same vision that you had for how the, it was going to run. You know, we're going to roll in at night. We're going to, you know, set up our stages, do all this stuff. You know, no one understood it. The venues didn't understand it. We couldn't even go into the venue. So we set up in the parking lot. I took down all the, there was a little bit of fence around the parking lot and we just let all the whole homeless people come in. And we, <laughs> so we, these are memorable stops. So when you say memorable, not necessarily memorable, good. I don't think people remember that's the problem. Sometimes we don't remember the good. We just remember those moments. Like when you question, <laughs> By the what am I doing here? here? You know, <laughs> like, you know, I'm at home making a pretty good living, you know, running shows for golden voice, you know, make it a decent living. And here I am like out there, like just every day and going. And when this. you think about that, you have a, a, a small child at home and a wife and, and you must've been questioning yourself in this first year. Oh, absolutely. Every stop. Every day, just <laughs> going, oh my God, this is just, I, but I'm, I've always been that kind of person that you, you just, you just can't, keep going. you can't settle. You can't no, just yeah. settle. And even at this point, why I'm sitting here talking to you, you just can't, so you gotta keep moving you gotta forward, keep moving. you know? Um, I tell my students every, you know, all the time that the only thing you run out of life is time, you know? It's true. Before we leave, uh, I have a clip, you know, I'd like to, you know, from Tazy, Tazy who had Ska Parade and we made it, we made it the whole summer. We got done. Right. And the last show was at Irvine Meadows. Meadows, yeah. But it wasn't Irvine Meadows. It was in the concourse, the little food circle <laughs> at Irvine Meadows. His first year, it was at Irvine Meadows concourse yeah. behind the parking lot <laughs> near the dumpster. Exactly. So uh, Tazy had something to add to this uh, to close out this episode. We went in along with two other record labels to do a, a booth at the Warp Tour at Irvine Meadows in 95 
And so it was Dancehall Crashers record label called 510 Records. And it was the company, the record label that I work with called Way Cool Music. And the third one was uh, uh, this other record label called Trauma Records, which was the home of a, of a new band that was coming out of there called No Doubt. And I, I actually, I found a photo from, uh, from that day. And it's a very significant day for me because, uh, I don't know, can you see that? Oh, yes, I can. Right there. Way cool music. I remember way cool music. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, um, so it, this is my uh, experience on the first Warp Tour in the summer of 95. And we had a booth. And the, and the biggest thing that happened to me that day was this is the day that they gave me the full cassette of Tragic Kingdom to play on Ska Parade. So after the show, they, they gave me the, uh, the cassette and I was able to debut more, more songs on my, on my program. And, and I, I have to say thank you so much, Kevin, because, you know, to, to be part of this was just amazing and really uh, um, added uh, something. Warped Tour was a family. I don't know how else to, 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 to put it. And, and we were a bunch of misfits who always got together every year and it was just glorious. I don't, and I, I'm just so thrilled to be part of that. That's the show. That's what I think I remember seeing. It was amazing. So it, it was almost a, a moment of complete um, debauchery and 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 it was like planned debauchery well, it, it turned out to be fantastic even the dog jumped on stage and chimed in it was it was a it was like watching a car accident yeah. that that turned out to be a, a perfect uh triple well and, that's, and that's kind of what first warp tour was it was a, a slow moving train wreck but but that that hit that hit the point you know well, it's a slow moving that that it 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 showed people enough people saw it to give me a second chance. Yeah, that was the biggest part about all of that. It was, and I always tell people it was like the 13, 12 and a half years that I put in before that, right. that allowed this, and then people took a hard look at it, and we were kind of on our way. With that being, that was the first year. There are so many people that were involved in that first year. Uh, we made it through the first year. We learned a lot that we took into the future years. Uh, but a lot of people don't really kind of know where a lot of this was. So I thought we'd cover that in the first year, uh, the first episode. Did you think at the end of that Irvine Meadow tour, when you had finished it up, you went home, you, you just no. slept for three days. No, I did you imagine no, that the back, next 25? I was working in a club the next morning. Oh, my much. God. Yeah, I mean, I literally, we, I think, unloaded the trucks. So I started working again in the clubs because I didn't have any money. We were pretty broke and um, I know I paid our mortgage. We had a very cheap mortgage, and I paid it out of the coin jar one year pretty much to get us to that <laughs> And uh, we'll talk later on in different episodes about how we integrated sponsors, how vans got involved. We're going to talk about how, you know, some of the things we learned about integrating brands into to, to music. and Right. Because we were kind of cut the, cutting our teeth on that. But the next episode is going to be all about food. Um, that first year, the lack of food. Um, the excess of heckler brow. <laughs> the fact that you didn't get sued. 
Because you didn't feed anybody? Uh, no, you don't get sued for not feeding anyone, but I did get sued that first year, which uh, we'll talk about at one point, about legal problems, about... Uh, yeah, that went the fun stuff. And uh, forcing it. But with that, you know, as being said, that's been a great... You know, our first episode, we'll be working on it constantly to make we'll, it better. We'll make it better and better and better. Yeah, we'll make it better and better. And, uh, you know, we'd love to, you know, thank all our guests and, and thank you to the first listeners. We appreciate your feedback and comments. Please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, TikTok, Spotify, Apple to get yourself an interview and be on the show. Follow at My Warped Life. Uh, follow our Patreon for full interviews. Text us at 818-863-6445. Before we leave tonight, I'd like to thank my co-host, Tony Aradia, my producers, Xavier Muster Shorts Bradley and Vivian Wang. Music by Diego Aratia. Creatives by Carly, Lost in the Northwest, Webster, and Sierra Lyman. Social media by Beata, Shem Tove, and by family. They know who they are. And now for a little outro music, Diego.